Now, this is Joey Brannon. Welcome to the Axiom Podcast. This is episode 44. We're going to be talking about Grow With Purpose, a book that I wrote. And we're going to be going through chapter eight. Chapter eight is called The Coach Always Knows the Score. And it's about the numbers that business owners need to be keeping track of in their business every single day, every single week, every single month. So I'll go through the chapter and then I'll come back and we'll talk about it a little bit more. Chapter eight, the coach always knows the score. Jessica had found herself in the right place at the right time and business was good. She was smack in the middle of an aging baby boomer population in the heart of one of the country's most desirable retirement communities. It wasn't a surprise that her home health care business was experiencing double digit growth for the fifth year in a row. The problem was just keeping up with all the new business coming in. As we got involved in the business, I started to work with Kathy, Jessica's right-hand person and general manager. In our meetings, I would ask Jessica for ballpark estimates on accounts receivable or overhead spending, and every time she would turn to Kathy. Kathy knew all the numbers, but that was a problem. Being able to get the number is not the same thing as knowing the number. If you know the number, it affects your behavior. If you have to go get the number, you usually don't bother. That means business owners who don't know their numbers consistently act or plan without the benefit of critical information. As the company continued to grow, Kathy struggled to keep up. Jessica was forced to jump back in and take a more active role. What she found surprised her. The company was hurting in several areas, from revenue and receivables to out-of-control overhead spending. She admitted to me that if she had known the numbers, she would have stepped in earlier or coached Kathy to be more disciplined with the finances. This chapter is about understanding a handful of critical numbers in your business. Like the coach of any team, you should always know the score. You can delegate a lot of things, but knowing the score is not one of them. Many of these numbers come directly off the financial statements. Others are a combination of financial numbers and operational numbers. All of them are accessible and practical if you take a little time to understand why they are important. That is my goal, not to make you an accountant, but to give you enough knowledge that you can put your accountants to good use. Those who know the numbers can also see when someone is trying to use overly complicated financial explanations to skirt the real issue. Your BS detector is about to get a whole lot better. Daily cash balance. This one is easy. The saying cash is king became a cliche for a reason. When cash runs out, operations grind to a halt. But other, more insidious things start to happen before cash runs out. When cash is low or unpredictable, it affects the ability of any business owner to think long term. We make poor decisions. We fail to take advantage of opportunities. We get short with our teammates. We become anxious and distracted around our family. As a result, the position of many business owners is ignorance is bliss. My friend Jamie had an El Camino in high school, and it had a broken gas gauge. Jamie knew that no one else was going to fill the tank, so he kept his eye on the odometer, doing the mental math to know when we needed to find a gas station. Too many business owners are blindly relying on someone else to fill the tank. At the start of every day, the business owner should know to the penny how much cash the business has in its accounts. With online banking and today's software programs, there is no reason cash cannot be reconciled daily. 
We have businesses that routinely process 200 cash transactions on a slow day, and their daily cash reconciliation takes less than 15 minutes. Several things happen when a business owner starts receiving a daily cash balance. First, there are fewer surprises. One of our clients was surprised when his bookkeeper came in and told him the company had missed three months of sales tax payments. She was about to spend $320,000 on back sales tax, including several thousand dollars in penalties. If our client had been in the habit of getting his daily cash balance, he would have noticed that for three months, his bank balance did not decline as much as it usually did around sales tax payment time. Instead, he got a nasty and expensive surprise. Second, when receiving a daily cash balance, you begin to build an expectation of what a normal balance is. When cash drops below this normal balance, you start asking questions about receivables, about large expenditures, about contracts in the sales pipeline. Knowing the daily balance can create a sense of urgency and purpose, especially when it drops below normal levels. Third, normal tends to go up over time. Owners in the habit of reviewing a daily cash balance watch spending more closely, collect money more quickly, and watch their balances go up over time. What you measure and pay attention to improves, and it all starts with knowing the daily cash balance. Daily sales. Dan is a client I usually meet with once a month, and we always meet toward the end of the day, about the same time his last customer is checking out at the front desk. Right after the start of our first meeting, Dan paused, picked up the phone, and got the day's closing sales number from the front desk. I knew right away we were going to enjoy working together. The daily sales number is the pulse of the business. It tells you whether all that busy activity actually resulted in anything productive. It lets your team know that you are paying attention. It keeps you and everyone else focused on the activities that will result in tomorrow's cash balance being better or worse than it is today, and it is usually one of the easiest numbers to get. A common complaint among business owners is how long it takes them to get their financials from accounting. It is not uncommon for small businesses to wait three to six weeks after each month in to get their numbers. But if they start receiving their daily cash balance every morning and their daily sales number every evening, things drastically improve. They still need to get their financials out earlier, but 90% of what they need to know they can get every day. If they have a revenue target for the month, they know by the end of every day whether they are on track. And if they have cash flow issues, they know at the beginning of every day just how low the cash balance is. When you get right down to it, nearly all of the costs of a business are known well ahead of time. Rent is the same each month. Utilities are roughly the same each month. Payroll is roughly the same every week or two. Paper clips cost about the same, and gas and cell phone bills rarely yield surprises. The biggest culprits for cash flow surprises are poor sales and major expenditures. By tracking daily sales, you will keep from falling behind revenue forecasts. By tracking daily cash, you will control major cash outflows. And whether your financials are ready at the end of each month or not, you won't need them to understand how your business is doing. Gross profit margin. When we explain the income statement to clients, we divide it into two halves. The top half contains gross profit, revenue minus the cost of goods sold. The bottom half shows overhead spending, We will talk about the bottom half in the next section. 
the top half of the income statement describes how your business is performing against the industry standard. This is useful because to a large extent, the market determines pricing. You may differentiate at the top or bottom end of the market, but there is a range of prices for businesses that do what you do. The market also tends to determine direct costs. The direct laborers who work in your industry generally make about the same amount of money regardless of which company they work for. Some make more, some make less, but across the range there is an average. Similarly, there is a cap on what distributors can charge you for raw materials and supplies. So, since the market sets the prices in your industry, and the industry uses roughly the same products and vendors, and the labor pool is about the same, you can expect that your gross profit is about the same, or should be, as other industry players when stated as a percentage of revenue. Occasionally, a business will enjoy a real competitive advantage. If you have a patent on your product, you might be able to charge significantly more because no one else can offer it. If you own a sister company that provides your raw materials, you may be able to purchase them significantly cheaper than the competition. But in the world of small business, this generally isn't the case. When we compare the gross margin, gross profit divided by gross revenue, of the business within the same industry and geographic market, they tend to be very similar. This means that a $1 million business and a $10 million business have roughly the same direct cost structure. I know there are economies of scale that can reduce costs, but on the whole, the top half of your income statement looks a lot like your peers on a percentage basis. Knowing your gross margin is important because it lets you know whether you are out of touch with the industry or not. If your gross margin is low, there are only two ways to fix it. Number one, raise prices, or number two, lower direct costs. If your gross margin is high, you should be able to explain why and whether or not that is sustainable. Otherwise, you may be in for a rude awakening as customers flee to cheaper competitors for essentially the same product or service. You should know your gross margin at the end of every month and for the 12 months ended with the most recently completed month. If you do project work, as opposed to selling widgets, you should be measuring the gross margin of each completed job to avoid any nasty surprises and to spot trends as they happen. You should also know the gross margin for your industry, section of the country, and company size. Trade associations are a valuable resource in this regard. The NYU Stern School of Business maintains a list of industry gross margin statistics. Overhead spending against budget. The bottom half of the income statement covers overhead spending and net income. This is where individual differences and preferences of the owners stand out. One business may be perfectly fine with 800 square feet of sparsely furnished office space and vehicles that have 200,000 miles on them. However, the competitor down the street has plush office space and brand new trucks. Both businesses can earn the same revenue. Both have the same gross margins, but one will have a significantly higher bottom line because overhead spending is kept lower. There is a lot to talk about in overhead, but the most important thing is this. Overhead should be budgeted. All this means is that we decide ahead of time what we will spend money on for the next year and then measure differences from this expectation. It is the same as a household budget. Let's say you budget $800 per month for meals and entertainment. 
It is now the 15th of the month, and you've already spent 750 If you want to stay on budget, you and your spouse will probably think twice before going to a fancy restaurant. Businesses that operate without a budget are most likely using their cash balance to make spending decisions. If the cash balance is high, they spend money. If the cash balance is low, they don't spend money. The problem with this approach is that it doesn't consider the seasonality of revenue or large annual expenses like income taxes. But that's not the biggest problem. Businesses that fail to budget fail to spend money in places that will grow the business. Growth requires investment, and investment comes from profits. Businesses that budget control spending to achieve a minimum of 10% net pre-tax profit. This means that if a business is generating $1 million in revenue, it will control overhead spending to achieve a minimum pre-tax profit of $100,000. Why a minimum of 10%? Uncle Sam is going to want about 3% of that 10% for income taxes. If the business has any debt, another 2 to 3% is required for principal payments. Hopefully, the business owner is putting away 2 to 3% minimum for unexpected expenses and rainy day funds. That leaves 1% or 2% for the business owner to take out as dividends. And as you can see, a business earning 10% net pre-tax profit is essentially treading water. If a business wants to grow, it really needs to be earning 15% net pre-tax margin. That additional cash is invested back into the business through marketing, additional salespeople, new equipment, and so on. Break-even sales. If a business has a revenue forecast, which should be easy to come up with once you get in the habit of reporting daily sales, if it knows its gross margin and if it has budgeted its overhead, the business owner has the equivalent of a green and yellow traffic signal. If daily sales are meeting forecast, gross margin is normal, and overhead spending is in check, the light is green. If any of those areas is off, the light is yellow. But what about the red light? Enter break-even sales. Break-even sales are the level of sales at which the business does not earn a profit, but also does not lose money. The powerful thing about break-even sales is that they can be calculated for virtually any time period, from yearly break-even sales all the way down to hourly break-even sales. Think about a drive through fast food restaurant. If the business knows the portion of its daily revenue that is typically earned during the lunch rush, and believe me, it does, it can come up with the number of hamburgers that need to go out the window every hour from 11 o'clock to 2 o'clock to avoid going into bankruptcy. This allows managers to watch daily sales during the lunch rush and see trends far enough in advance to adjust schedules, change pricing, launch promotions, or add a second order window. Break-even sales are powerful tools. Break-even sales are calculated by dividing overhead spending by the gross margin percentage. For a business with 40% gross margins and $1,000 a day in overhead, the daily break-even sales are $2,500, or $1,000 divided by 40%. You can work backwards to prove this out. Revenue of $2,500 times gross margin of 40% less $1,000 of overhead equals zero net profit. To calculate annual break-even sales, divide the annual overhead by gross margin. To calculate weekly break-even sales, divide weekly overhead by gross margin. 
You can use break-even sales for any time period to determine whether the red light is flashing or not. Businesses that do not use break-even sales to manage operations will typically enjoy fat profits during the busy time of the year and give much of those profits back when things slow down. Their competitors know when the yellow light turns red and they immediately begin to adjust labor schedules, cut overhead costs, and adjust prices to bring in just enough business to keep from losing money. At the end of the year, they have enjoyed the benefits of the fat profitable months while avoiding the bloody unprofitable season. Understand your balance sheet. I stood looking out at a dozen business owners, all more accomplished than me. One of them headed a $150 million construction firm. Another had been in business for over 40 years. Another had started and sold four businesses in the last 20 years. These people were giants to me, and I respected all of them. They had asked me to come and repeat a talk I had done on helping business owners understand financial statements. As we went through the income statement, there were a lot of nodding heads, and I could tell they grasped the material well. I had no doubt that many of them were already doing some of the things I was suggesting. Then we switched gears, and I said, let's talk about the balance sheet. By a show of hands, how many of you are completely comfortable with your balance sheet, meaning you understand what the numbers represent and how they got there? One hand went up. These guys ran multi-million dollar companies, and almost none of them understood one of the most basic financial statements in the business. I've learned that this is pretty common. The income statement makes sense. Revenue minus expenses equals profit. This looks a lot like the real-world experience of receiving money for customers and paying out some of it to vendors and employees. The rest, we get to keep. It is never that simple, but the income statement is arguably easier to understand than the balance sheet, so most business owners stay clear of the balance sheet. It is important that you understand your balance sheet because without it, there is a hole in your financial understanding of the business big enough to drive a truck through. At the simplest level, the balance sheet is made up of just three things. Assets are what you own, liabilities are what you owe, and equity is what you are worth. The three are related mathematically in an equation, assets minus liabilities equals equity. If you have $100 in the bank, that is an asset, something you own. If you owe the credit card company $120, that is a liability, something you owe. If these are your only balance sheet items, your equity is negative $20, meaning that you're not just broke, you're on the verge of bankruptcy. Let's talk about each of these in a little more detail. Assets consist of cash, accounts receivable, inventory, equipment, and deposits you have with utility companies, landlords, and so forth. These are all things you own. Liabilities consist of accounts payable, credit card debt, bank loans, payroll liabilities, and prepayments from customers for which you have not yet delivered products and services. Equity consists primarily of capital you invested in the business and retained earnings or profits from previous periods that you have left in the company and held on to. If you think of your balance sheet this way, it makes it possible to sit down with your CPA and ask questions like, Accounts receivable is something I own, right? It's an asset. It says here that we have more than $300,000 in accounts receivable, but we only sell about a million dollars a year to customers. 
Are you telling me we have the equivalent of four months of sales that is still out there uncollected? This conversation actually happened with a friend of mine, and what he found out was that for years his company had been failing to collect from certain customers, but they had continued to sell to those deadbeat customers. He made phone calls to the owners of these customer companies, asked why the bills hadn't been paid, explained he had had little choice but to stop doing business with them if they couldn't get current, and added $150,000 to his bank balance over about two weeks. Armed with this very simple understanding of your balance sheet, you should have the conversation line by line with your accountant or bookkeeper. And don't stop asking questions until you're satisfied with the answers. The next time you're in a room with 11 other business owners, you will be the one person who actually fully understands what is happening in the business. The price of not knowing. Asking owners to invest this time is a hard sell until they have a war story to tell. Occasionally, we run across corporate fraud. In one case, a bookkeeper embezzled $200,000 over the course of two years. In another case, a bookkeeper embezzled over $400,000 in about the same amount of time. These were small companies, and the losses nearly put them out of business. In both cases, a full understanding of the financial statements would have caught the fraud earlier or prevented it altogether. It may not be as sinister as embezzlement. It may be that your bookkeeper gives intentionally confusing answers to get you to go away when you ask tough questions. One time I overheard a business owner ask the bookkeeper, how come we are so busy but the cash balance isn't going up? The response was, uh, that's just because we are on a cash basis of accounting instead of accrual. And the owner just nodded his head and turned the page. I wanted to yell something across the room and tell the bookkeeper he was full of it, but this wasn't a client. I was just a customer waiting for them to finish washing my car, and I didn't want to cause a scene. The point is that you should understand your numbers and stay on top of them. If you don't, and there's someone else in your company who does, it is a recipe for disaster. If you don't understand your numbers, your business is adrift, and it might not survive when the unexpected happens. Knowing your numbers not only gives you resilience, it puts you in a position to grow. So when we talk about numbers in the business, we know how to keep track of what's happening in the business. That story that opened the chapter of the business owner who was kind of in the right place at the right time, it's really not that uncommon. Uh, there's an adage that a friend of mine uh, used a long time ago, and I've kind of grabbed it and I've heard it in other places too since then. But the saying is, sales hides sins. And I think that that's true in some sense, but what it really is is like cash hides sins. When you've got a lot of cash on hand, when there's cash coming in, you typically don't pay attention to a lot of the problems in the business. It's only when the cash starts to dry up or when the cash starts stops coming in, cash flow, you know, there's more money going out than coming in. You see those cash balances dwindle. Then they start to ask hard questions, right? And so what we want to teach business owners and what we want business owners to get in the habit of is asking those questions all the time, not just when cash is, is good. And there are a few reasons for that. The, the, number one, there are going to be times when cash is not a great indicator of performance. And this often happens in growing businesses where growth requires investment. It might be it might require, you know, adding a new salesperson who's going to be on draw. And in a small business, 
that extra draw, you know, of 500 or 1000 bucks a week or whatever it's going to be, that can be a significant drain on cash. And it would be easy if you were just looking at the cash and you see more money going out than coming in each week, it would be easy for you to pull the plug on that new hire, to pull the plug on that new investment, to pull the plug on that new initiative, whether it's spending marketing dollars in a new place and there's you know a, a three-month or a six-month lead time or like bringing on a new employee, investing in a new piece of equipment. And it, it, this uh, tendency to focus on cash can make you kind of neurotic. It, it's 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 a it's an emotional pull, you know. When when you, especially for business owners who've been through tough times before, and, and we see this uh, sometimes when uh, business owners like they've been through the two thousand eight, two thousand nine, two thousand ten recession, you know, of of ten, eleven years ago. And they, they've kind of internalized a lot of those feelings that came out of that time when they did run out of cash or when cash was so tight they had to make drastic cuts. And now whenever there's a hiccup in cash, they react emotionally. And that's perfectly understandable. But we have to look at a lot of other barometers in the business besides just cash to get a clear sense of what's happening and how operations are going and whether we need to be changing anything or not. So while while daily cash balance is the the very first number that we talk about and it is hugely important it isn't the only one but most times when we run into unsophisticated businesses like smaller businesses even i shouldn't even say smaller businesses because we've run into you know 15 20 million dollar businesses that are still basically running the the business out of the bank account meaning if if the bank account goes up, it was a great month. If the bank account goes down, it was a bad month. And so I'll, I'll share another story with you um, where this doesn't work out very well. Uh, just, you know, a great month, cash is coming in or bank account's up, bad month, cash is down. So we had a client. This was about, this was pre-recession. So this is going back quite a ways. Um, and this client was a, a pool builder. And so they, 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 person who owned the company, he had purchased the company, he didn't start the company, moved down here, purchased the company, and uh, was learning the pool building business. Now, he had project managers who were experienced on the construction side. He had designers who were experienced on the sales and design side. So his primary function was primarily like managing the business, such like all of the, the managerial pieces and making sure the pieces and parts were talking to each other and coordinating and the orders were getting done. Um, but at the same time, not understanding a great deal about the pool business kind of uh, crept up on them. And what was happening is that they would get their first draw on a pool when the contract was signed. So the way that this worked is if like you had a $30,000 pool, they would get, let's let's make it 40,000, make the math easy, $40,000 pool, $10,000 would come in at the time the contract was signed. And that's when they would they would order the materials. They would you know ordering the the everything from the pavers to getting the pool cage on order and all that stuff. The pool equipment, all of that ordering would start happening at that time when the contract was signed because we had pretty big lead times due to the the uh, how busy the market was. We had a lot of new homes going in. All those new homes had pools. The people who wanted pools with existing homes, like they're fighting for their spot in line for equipment and pool cage reservations and that kind of stuff. So that first deposit would pay for all that stuff. And then the, then when the cage would go in the ground, when it was time to, or not the cage, when it was time to put the shell in the ground, there'd be another $10,000 that was due and that the pool company would get. Uh, actually, it was a little bit bigger. I think it was like $15,000 at that point. 
the pool was already half, more than halfway paid for, basically before the shell went in the ground. So the the crews would show up, um, you know, a few days later, maybe a week later, and they would start to to put the rebar in and spray the the cement and the gunite and put the shell in the ground. And then after that, you had another draw for um, when the equipment got installed, and the final draw was due when the when the cage was installed. What was happening in this business is that they were very quick to grab that fifty or sixty percent of the the purchase price early on when very little work had been done and very little cost had been incurred. And so they would have these they had this period where they sold a lot of pools, but things were backed up. Uh, it was hard to get subcontractors out there. It was hard to get. Um, the gunite guys out there, it was hard to get the pool cage guys out there. So they were collecting deposits and they were getting stuff into the schedule and they were, uh, they're depositing lots of cash, but the work wasn't getting done. In the meantime, they had come to find out a lot of inefficiencies in the office. They were overstaffed in the office. Um, they were paying their sales and design team way too much. Uh, they were way out of the market on that. They also had some pretty expensive office space that was sucking up cash every single month and rents. And they were, um, while they're making all these sales, they were putting new vehicles out into the fleet. And so they had a, a kind of a modest fleet, but you know they they felt like they were big time, and so they started to change out a lot of those older vehicles for brand new vehicles, and they were adding new vehicles at the same time. All that to say, they were using up tremendous amounts of cash. What happened was that when it got time to finish those jobs, when it got time to pay the subcontractors who were putting the shell on the ground, when it got time to pay the equipment vendors who who were delivering the equipment, when it got time to pay the aluminum uh, pool cage folks, when it got time to to pay the paving contractors, and then the final landscape people who come in and finish the job off, they didn't have the money to do it. They had to go sell another job so that they would have the cash to finish the last job. This whole time, they had been robbing Peter to pay Paul. And they had gotten lulled into this false sense of security with this sales bubble where they collected a lot of cash because all they were looking at was the cash account. And later on, they did not have the cash to finish the jobs that they had already been committed to. Long story short, the business wound up changing hands another time because this business owner didn't have any options. He was basically going to force them to sell or bankruptcy, and he had to essentially give the business back to the purchaser. So that's the, that's the problem in some businesses is that cash is not always a great indicator of how you're performing. There are lots of businesses that collect deposits up front, and they haven't done any work yet. So all you've really proven is that you're good at collecting deposits. You're not necessarily good at delivering on the work. And if you can't earn the revenue, then you really can't pay attention to cash as a barometer of how well you're operating. So these other numbers will all help you understand that. So when we talk about gross margin, gross margin is a great indicator for how you're performing against your peers in your industry. And the reason for that is, I think we said this in the chapter, is you have pretty much the same suppliers that all your competitors have. You have pretty much the same labor pool, meaning like if you're an AC contractor, you're having to pay AC technicians the market rate, the same as other AC technicians. You don't get a free pass to pay them a lot less. And most of the time, unless you've got a really terrible culture, you don't have to pay them a lot more to keep them. 
Uh, so, and your pricing is pretty much set by the market. If I'm charging, uh, if I'm a plumbing company, I'm charging $125 an hour or $125 for the first half hour, and that's what the market is, it's going to be really hard for me to go out there and charge $200 for the first half hour. So your pricing is pretty much dictated by the market. Your costs are pretty much dictated by the market. Therefore, your gross margin, that percentage of gross profit to revenue, is dictated by the market. And if you're in an industry where the industry on the, on the whole, we can get an industry benchmark report or we get some kind of uh, pure data, and we can see that after the direct costs and the direct labor, the direct materials and the direct labor are paid for, these businesses keep roughly, say, 50 cents on the dollar, 50% gross margin before they have to cover their overhead costs. And we look at your business and you're at 40%, we say, time out. Something's not right here. Either your pricing is too low or your costs are too high. It's one of the two, but you're substantially different from everybody else in the field. Now, there are cases where everybody else is getting 50% and you're getting 60%. And we go, why is that? Is it because you've specialized in a particular uh, type of work that gets higher prices in within your industry? Is it because you sit in this very special, um, maybe geographic or socio-demographic segment where uh, people are willing to pay more and maybe you got in early and you're able to contain your costs where the people who are trying to move into that market are having to pay more for real estate or pay more for rent or pay more for labor. You know, But those are pretty unusual. The only areas that we really see huge disparities in gross margin are where uh, somebody has intellectual property rights. So you know, I have the ability to sell a product or service and nobody else can sell that product or service. Or I have the ability to buy... Um, raw materials, and nobody else has the ability to buy them at the same price. Or I have a licensing agreement that gives me access to uh, resell somebody else's labor that nobody else has an opportunity to resell. And so those kind of distinctions, those kind of competitive advantages, uh, they may exist for a time, but usually there's a, there's a time limit on them. You know, copyrights, patents expire, uh, licensing agreements are for a certain term. And so, you know, you have to make the money while you can at above market rates, and then you'll have to adjust later. So gross margin is really one of the things that we look at that helps us understand whether a business is operating widely outside their market conditions and they're going to have their lunch eaten by their competitors. One of the um, the other things that we talk about is overhead spending. Uh, overhead spending is, you know, kind of a it's pretty simple uh, when it comes down to it. So if you know, for the uninitiated, when you when you look at all the money that a business uh, spends and what it spends it on, we just talked about direct materials and direct labor. So if I'm an HVAC contractor, my direct materials costs are the cost of the AC units, the cost of the parts that I'm putting into people's homes. And my labor is the cost of that technician who's going out into the field to install that and the cost of the salesperson who's going out there to maybe do the quote. Not included in those costs are my rent, my insurance, the labor for the people who sit in the office and do customer service, the labor in the office for the accountant, the labor in the office for the general manager, the labor in the office for uh, the trainers or the people who, who uh, supervise the warehouse. All of that stuff is indirect. 
And that stuff, it will change as the business grows. So as sales go up, yeah, we might have to add another warehouse person. But we don't have to add a warehouse person every time sales goes up by 5% or 10%. Or we might have to add a new warehouse person when sales increase 20% or 30%. And then we're probably good until sales maybe double. And then we might have to get one more person. So we add those costs and these stair steps. And they don't necessarily uh, track um, linearly with sales. They kind of do these, these stair step fashion. Um, but there's some costs in the business that just don't change at all with a sales increase. Um, so, so there, it could be uh, insurance is probably a bad example because general liability insurance typically does go up with sales increases. But let's say that you're, um, let's say it's rent. Let's say that you have, you've, you know, after COVID, you had to go to a, a hybrid workforce. We've got some people in the office, but all the new folks who are coming on board are virtual employees. Well, there are businesses that are that can double or triple in size now, and rent is not going to go up. So those over that's kind of the dis- distinction of overhead. Is that it, those, those are the costs that don't uh, increase with sales. They're kind of flat. They're static. They're fixed. And anytime you have those kind of costs that should not go up, you need to set a budget. What is our expectation for what we're going to spend on this particular cost for this year in rent, in insurance, in staff labor, in um, office supplies and internet uh, costs and telephone expense, all that stuff goes into fixed overhead and you put a budget on it. And then every month you track, how did we do against budget? It's not that difficult. And if we're going over budget, why are we going over budget? And the, the thing is like very few businesses will hit budget on every single item. There's going to be some that they're under and that's great you know, fantastic. We didn't have to spend as much as we thought. There's going to be a lot that we're over and we're going to have to ask the question, why are we over? And it's the asking of the question and the work to get the answer that is really what differentiates the businesses that are well run from the ones who just stick their head in the sand and say, well, I guess we just need to sell more. There's not enough cash in the account. Let's just sell more. And that's the big difference. If you'll, if you'll budget your overhead and you'll ask those tough questions, why are we over? Why is it that our insurance expense is higher than we budgeted. And you go back and you start looking and you talk to your insurance agent and your carrier and they say, well, you know, property rates in general are going up X percent this year. Uh, you had a claim uh, on one of your, your company-owned vehicles and that made your insurance go up there. Well, what can we do about that? Well, I, don't, I noticed that um, you know, there are some modifications that can be made to the building and your wind insurance is going to go down. There are some, uh, if you put these uh, GPS tracking and telematics devices in your vehicles, we can get your auto carrier to reduce your rate. And those are the businesses, they're asking the questions, and then they're taking action after they get the answers that are going to be able to manage their costs much better and outperform competitors. The last thing I want to talk about, uh, I think budgeting is is pretty straightforward. I'll talk about two things because we still need to hit the balance sheet. But when we talk about um, break-even, this is one of those numbers that most businesses don't know. And, and the thing that they, they, they fail to understand and the thing that they have to get clear is that previous distinction we made between direct materials and direct labor and overhead labor or overhead costs. So there are some costs that move directly with your sales. So you can't sell an air conditioner without buying the air conditioner to put in the person's home. You can't install it in somebody's home without paying the technician to do the work to get it in there. So that stuff is all part of that gross margin number. The revenue is part of it. 
and the, the cost to put it in are part of it. But overhead is completely different. And so when somebody says, um, we hear this question sometimes, and it's, and it's really confusing to people, and it's hard for them to get their head around, is, well, how, what, is, what is the overhead that's in a, a particular job? Like, well, there isn't any overhead in a job. And they'll, so what they're saying is, hey, I'm going to sell this. If I look at my air conditioner, it's going to cost me uh, $2,000 to buy it from the, ma- the manufacturer. And it's going to cost another, let's say it's $4,000. And then it's going to cost me another 500 bucks to pay the labor to get it in there. So I've got $4,500 to put it in. And they go, how much should I put in to the price to cover overhead? Like, I don't know, because I don't know how many air conditioners you're going to sell. If you've, if you've got $100,000 worth of overhead, and you tell me you're going to sell 1,000 air conditioners, we'll add 100 bucks, and it'll cover your overhead. And then whatever else is on top of that is your profit. And that's the, the misnomer about trying to add overhead into project cost or a sales items cost. You can't do it. It doesn't make any sense. The overhead is there to support all of the sales. The question you should be asking is how many air conditioners do I have to install to cover my $100,000 of overhead at my existing gross margin? And that's just a simple math problem. So if your gross margin is 50%, meaning we sell $100 worth of air conditioners, we're going to keep 50, and I've got $100,000 of overhead, well, then I need to sell $200,000 of air conditioners to have $100,000 left over to cover my overhead, and then I break even. So the way that we get that number very quickly and very simply after you understand the concept is you take your overhead expense and you divide it by your gross margin. So if your overhead expense is $100,000 and your gross margin is 50%, you take $100,000 divided by 50%, and your break-even sales rate is $200,000. And this is a little bit of a shift, but it's the shift that makes successful businesses able to go out there and set sales targets that are actually going to fund the growth of the business, as opposed to a business who says, hey, let's just add uh, an extra $150 to every sale for overhead. And if you don't sell enough units, it doesn't matter. What you really need to know is how many units do I have to sell to break even? And if I sell more than that, then I'm going to make a profit. If I sell less than that, I'm going to have a loss. So break-even sales is is a powerful concept. And it's one of the things that it's not enough just to know what are my break-even sales for the year. That's important. But you, you can get lulled to sleep because... Almost every business is going to have some seasonality to it. So you're going to have, a, like for air conditioners, like we've been talking about, they obviously are going to do more business here in Southwest Florida in the summertime, in the early spring to, uh, to midsummer, is when they're going to sell a ton of air conditioners. Because you turn the air conditioner on for the first time in you know, a couple months in February or March, and you know it, it's it's broken, right? And you got to get somebody out there to fix it. Or you're sitting here in June and July and the thing's been running 24-7 for the last three months and it's 10 years old and it goes down. And so those businesses, if they just took their annual break-even rate and they said, hey, we need to sell, say, 1,200 units a year, uh, so that's 100 units a month, and they, they go through 
January and they're like, oh, that was a tough month. We didn't, we only sold 80. And they go to February and like, oh, that was a little bit better. We sold 95. And then they get to March and they're like, oh, wow, we sold 120. Fantastic. And they get to April and they sell 120. And they go, oh, that's great. And then they get to May and June and some of these guys start getting tired. And like, hey, I need to take vacation. Oh, yeah, that's fine. Like, we're, we're killing it. We're doing well over our break even. And then you get to June and you got a bunch of people out. And you're only able to get to, say, 80 or 90 units because you didn't have the labor to do it. And then you come into September, October, November, and you're selling 80 units, 70 units. So you really have to figure out what should my break even be at different times in the year to cover the cost uh, of, of doing business. In retail, they, they know the break even on an hourly basis in a lot of businesses. They know when their busy time is and they know like their, their goal for like 10 a.m. to 11 or 11.30 you know, might be one or two retail sales, but their goal from 11.30 to 1.30 might be 100 sales because they know that's what it's going to take during that period to, to cover the losses in the, in the slower times of the day. So break-even sales kind of ramps up the sophistication level a little bit more. And then if you really want to be a pro at understanding your financial statements, you got to get into the balance sheet. And it's really not as complicated as people think. If you just think about it in terms of assets, liabilities, and equity, those are the three types of things that you'll see on a balance sheet. Assets are the things you own. Liabilities are the things that you owe, the debts that you owe, and equity is what's left over, essentially. So everything in the accounting world kind of boils down on the balance sheet to those three categories. The problem is that business owners look at things like cash and they go, yes, I own my cash account. I understand that. And they look at accounts receivable and they're like, yes, I own my accounts receivable. I understand that. And then they get into things like prepaid deposits or prepaid insurance. And they're like, what? I, that's not something I, I already paid that. I, that's, I don't own that insurance policy. I already paid that. I mean, I'm the beneficiary. But when you get into things like prepaids and accruals, they are things that you own. That is services that people owe back to you. That's somebody else's liability, which makes it your asset. And I don't want to get into the, all the technical types of assets and liabilities. My point is that as the business owner, you really need to sit down with your CPA and force them, or your controller, or your CFO, and force them to explain to you every single item that's on your balance sheet until you understand it. I see business owners who are embarrassed to do that because they think they should know. And unless you majored in accounting, you there you have no reason to know. These are not uh, like common sense topics. When you get into prepaids and accruals and unearned income and earned income and excess billings over costs, these are not concepts that most people are just going to be able to rattle off the top of their head, not even most business owners. So they're, you know, don't be embarrassed to sit down and force your CPA to explain this to you. And if you get grief, go get a new CPA, go get a new controller, go get a new CFO. Like Their job is to give you the information so that you can lead the organization well. And if they're unwilling to do that or if they're patronizing towards you or they don't think it's worth their time, there are others out there who are willing to help you lead that organization better, and you need to go out and find them. And this is a bit, I just, I'm getting on my soapbox here a little bit because it really chaps me that we have leaders uh, and they're, they're not getting what the information they need 
from the people that they're relying on to help them lead the organization. And sometimes it's insecurity on the part of a controller or CFO. Sometimes it's arrogance. Sometimes it's hubris. But there's really no place for it in a well-performing business. And so take it upon yourself to learn what's on your balance sheet, hold the people accountable for explaining it to you. And if you have issues there, just have a heart-to-heart with them and say, I'm going to get this information. Like, you're going to help me get it, or I'm going to find somebody else who's going to help me get it, but I'm not going to run this business blind. I'm not going to run it in the dark. That's really all I have. Um, I I, I would like to see more businesses uh, get closer to their numbers, I think one of the keys to that is not being afraid to dive in, and that's where that CFO controller relationship can be so helpful, a bookkeeper or CPA. Um, Get somebody that you can work with well. Get somebody who has great personal chemistry with you. Get somebody who's going to be patient with you when you ask hard questions. And understand that sometimes the questions you're asking and the pushback you're getting is because they're behind. It's because they know they should have done something and they didn't. They know they did make a mistake and they feel bad about it. And you know, just like everybody else in the business, the people who are in charge of the books, the people who are in charge of the finances, they're not perfect. So you're going to have to have some grace too. And a lot of that uh, positive working relationship comes down to you know, your willingness to just be transparent and open with each other and to work with that person so that they can perform at the best of their ability. Next week, we're going to get into chapter nine. We've got two chapters left, and uh, we'll see you back here. <laughs>